This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day, and they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 375 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show this week, Tom Eberhardt and Cyrus Aholt. Now, Tom was on episode 73 of the show, is a superintendent of Bastoy Prison in Norway, and Cyrus is a member of AMEND, which you will hear is one of the organizations that is pushing change within our prison system and philosophy. So we cover a host of topics from the current Philadelphia model, the progressive Norwegian model, addiction and violence in prisons, how they have been affected by COVID, and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback, I love reading your feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating you leave makes this project more and more visible for people looking for it. And then as I mentioned, this is a free library internationally for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tom Eberhardt and Cyrus Aholt. Enjoy.
Tom and Cyrus, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Show podcast today. My pleasure. So the very first question I have for each of you one at a time. Um, Tom, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Well, now merely outside Oslo. Uh, the last time I was talking to you, I was working as a, a warden at Boston Prison. Uh, now for six months, I've had a, a leave, and now I'm merely working for an organization called AMEND at uh, the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm working as a program manager for helping them and to change the correctional culture uh, in the United States. Brilliant. Well, staying on that for a second. So how, describe to me the process that the Norwegian prison system um, facilitated you actually taking that leave and going to help amend. Well, I've been working with the people from Amend for I think nearly six years now. Six years now, uh, as a warden of Boste, I used to have these visits once or twice uh, a year from Amend, where they were bringing along uh, uh, American colleagues from different kind of states. And uh, through the years, uh, I uh, was kind of intrigued with the way they were, uh, you know, aiming at changing uh, the correctional culture in America. Because I think what kind of differed Amend from a lot of other organizations, which, which really hit me, was the way they were talking about the, the health of the correctional staff. And in my mind, in order to change a correctional culture, you need to start with the staff. Because they are the ones that are more or less... Uh, you know, the, the deciding in the first place uh, the culture you will find in any prison. If they interact with uh, the inmates, the, the the culture will be better. If they don't interact with the uh, inmates, the, the inmates obviously will find their own culture. Uh, so I think I really fell in love with their angle, uh, you know, at starting with, with, with the health issues uh, of correctional staff and inmates. So after some years, they asked me if I um, wanted to to work for them through the directorate of the Norwegian Correctional Service. Brilliant. Now, you came on on episode 73. So if people listening want to hear the full conversation, that's the place to go to hear Tom's Tom's you know journey in depth and, and the impact that you know was made at Bastoy specifically. But can you just walk us through the roles that you had within the prison system before you got to the governor position? Yeah, uh, I'm now I'm quite an old man, uh, and I've been working for the service for almost 26 years. Uh, I'm educated as a uh, correctional officer and been working my way uh, through the different ranks. Uh, and the last 11 years, I've been a uh, prison warden or governor, as we call it here, uh, for two different prisons. The first one was uh, a prison called Indra Østfold Prison, which is a semi-high high and low security prison. Uh, in the last seven years, I've been uh, governor at a prison called Boston Island, uh, which is an island prison just outside Oslo. So I've been there for seven years. Brilliant. All right. Well, over to you, Cyrus. So um, first, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Well, uh, I work. Uh, for, I'm a chief program officer for Amend at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco. But I am uh, dialing in from rural Maine, where... Uh, as we work remotely, my family has kind of uh, headed closer to um, to extended family to kind of hunker down and be in a less of a city. So I'm I'm actually from the ends of the earth here in Maine. 
Very cool. Yeah, it's funny, whether permanent or temporary, I've, I've seen a lot of people transition further east at the moment during, you know, whether it's COVID, the fires, and just the whole sum total of California life at the moment. It is. It's a, it's a, I feel for my colleagues and, you know, friends and um, correctional folks as well. Uh, back in California, it's been a rough summer. Yeah, no, I'm sure. All right. Well, then, again, as we did with Tom, if you wouldn't mind kind of walking me through, you know, your your young life through to where you are now, as far as the kind of career journey that took you to amend. So, sure. sure. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, it's uh, so I am uh, been at uh, at amend and in our program at UCSF for over a decade. Our our director, uh, Bree Williams, is a physician. And my background is in public health. Uh, and together, um, as I say, for more than a decade, we've worked really on correctional health, meaning the healthcare services provided inside jails and prisons in the U.S. Um, we've done a lot of research and a lot of consulting and working with prison systems and also in the context of lawsuits to improve uh, incarcerated people's access to quality healthcare. And around... Uh, five or six years ago, we um, were getting increasingly frustrated with that uh, with that work, and and recognizing that um, there was something else about how U.S. jails and prisons are run uh, and how they operate. That no matter how much quality healthcare services you can provide to incarcerated people. Um, there was something still going on that, that was really undermining their health and well-being. Um, at the same time, we had more and more kind of collaboration and, and relationships with correctional staff and, and, and prison leadership, wardens and, and officers and others. And we're hearing that they too were, you know, suffering in these environments that they were experiencing, you know, these, these health, um, bad health effects of, of being in a prison and jail and that's when we kind of shifted our, our focus of our work and thought more about correctional, what we call kind of correctional culture, but what are the norms and practices and values that go on in, inside a jail and a prison and how those things are influencing people's health and well-being. And, um, you know, and not just among people who are incarcerated, but the people who work in these places every day. So, you know, we, we started and this was really brief taking the lead on looking around the world for another prison system that um, had a more public health approach, you know, to this, to this problem and visited a number of countries. And we've already worked with a lot of States around the U S and we're pretty familiar with, with uh, our programs here in the U S or our departments here in the U S and ended up connecting with, um, with our colleagues in Norway. That was in 2014. Tom was one of the first guys we met. Um, and, uh, it's kind of ever since then we've been working together, trying to build this program and build this approach to helping prisons and jails in the U S really dramatically transform what they do and how they think about their work so that it can be a healthier environment that actually promotes, you know, well-being and rehabilitation, um, and kind of recognizes the humanity of everybody involved in these places. Um, so it's been a kind of, of a long kind of winding path, but here, particularly in the last couple of years, um, and now with our uh, Tom and Erlen and a few of the other guys who work really closely with us in Norway, we've really 
developed a program that we're excited about and and I think are on the kind of edge of of getting it out to more people. Brilliant. Well, I want to I want to set the kind of like the 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 stage as far as how we in the the US, the UK, Australia um developed or, or or found ourselves using this particular model and correct me if I'm wrong the, the Philadelphia model where we are caging humans and I don't mean that to sound inflammatory or anything but it, it is I mean we're literally building concrete structures and putting people in there and locking them you know away from what I would consider so many of the positive coping mechanisms that we have as human beings so how how has the the evolution or even devolution of the prison system happened up to this point before you know people started thinking about more progressive ideas well i can i can kind of start you know it's, as you kind of point to it's it's a really complicated story and i and i don't want to suggest that it's an easy one or, or and it's certainly not a simple one to unravel but the you're pointing to the kind of origins in the philadelphia model is really really correct and you know, one of the examples we often quote is our, our program is trying to really s- help people reduce their reliance on like isolation or solitary confinement um, as a tool in corrections. We, we really feel like it, it's not a useful tool. It's counterproductive. Um, and in fact, in the Philadelphia model, one of the first things they brought in was widespread use of solitary confinement. And it was kind of a religious concept where they thought that people would, uh, if you isolated people, they would have time to think uh, about themselves and to make changes internally. And it drove people crazy. And as early as 18, in the 1890s, I want to say in the U.S., you have like court rulings and Supreme Court justices recognizing that this practice is is inhumane and, and counterproductive to a correctional mission. Uh, and yet here we are 120 years later still seeing that in widespread use in our systems in the U.S., and it just kind of underlines, um, you know, how hard it's been to dig out of that that kind of approach and, and attitude towards corrections. Um, but it has been a winding path here in the U.S. You know, we did emphasize rehabilitation at certain points in the journey. Um, there was a, a move towards greater focus on rehabilitation in the 60s, for example. Um, but I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the overcrowding that started to happen in the 80s and 90s has been a really – the, the central challenge. Um, and we have developed over time a lot of sympathy for our colleagues who work in corrections and who run these prisons and jails. Um, they typically, they haven't asked for the numbers of people um, that have been put into their institutions. They also find it frustrating and stressful to be overcrowded and to be warehousing people, as you kind of rightly point out, James, um, caging people as a, as a kind of last resort to manage these massive numbers of people. Um, and so there's, in some ways they've made some, you know, in the moment rational decisions in response to quite a crazy situation with the overcrowding. Um, but what we have seen and learned from our friends in Norway and, and, and others is that um, even in those conditions, there is a better way. You, you don't have to dehumanize people um, and you, you can, um, kind of hold yourself to a higher calling and pursue a, a, a real public safety mission in a rehabilitation focused way. It's possible, but, but man, you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really deep hole to dig out of with, with how we've constructed and filled these places in the last 20 or 30 years. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, I liken it to something that I talk about all the time. And I really want to explore this, you know, a little bit later in the interview, but the ripple effects of drug prohibition and what we're seeing now, the violence on the streets, therefore much more dangerous for civilians, much more dangerous for law officers. So law enforcement officers, excuse me. So that one decision, you know, uh, upstream has affected so many people and taken so many lives. And that's the way I, I look at the prison system at the moment is, as you said, it's it's detrimental to the people that have been incarcerated. It's de- detrimental to the guards who are working in those prisons that are putting their lives on the line to try and keep their community safe. So we owe it to the citizens. We owe it to the to the corrections officers to address this and try and come up with a better solution that will a reduce recidivism and b make it safer for the correctional officers as well. It's a good point, and I think. Throughout history, uh, I think since the, the Middle Ages, we have kind of used prison more or less in the, in the same ways uh, in, in, in most countries. And I think throughout history also, you have had quite important people that have recognized really how bad prison are for people uh, and how, you know, uh, solitary, solitary confinement and, and isolation, how, how that really affects people. We have, you know, you know uh, famous people like P- Peter the Great, the emperor of Russia, in the in the 1800s, that stated something like, uh, a, "A prison is uh, such a terrible place that uh, any government should use it with caution." You had a great speech of uh, Winston Churchill uh, in in the forties saying that, uh, "Show me your prisons, and I will show you uh, tell you how civilized you are as a country." So I think we have, we have always known that you know treating people bad in prison uh, is not good for a country. Uh, but even though, so I think. Uh, you will find in, in most countries uh, across the globe that we tend to still use prison in a very punitive way that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, get to uh, keep the community safe outside prison. Yeah, well, just to add on to that, I've noticed, sadly, through my own son, my child, that even psychiatric facilities are being used that way now. He, through you know a series of of errors basically between his school and law enforcement um, ended up in a three-day hold and while he was there I witnessed four or five other children just from that school cycle through there as well so you know that kind of washing your hands mentality mentality is not just in our prisons but it's even in our psych wards too yeah and I think uh, when it comes to to crime and punishment it really addresses uh, 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 people's gut feeling of revenge, that wrongdoing needs to be met uh, in a very hard way, otherwise the thing wasn't, doesn't work. And that, uh, uh, in that way, we kind of satisfy this big monster in our stomach, which is the feeling of revenge. Uh, and I really uh, uh, say it's really important that, for instance, victims of crime uh, relatives of victims of crime uh, are eventual, are angry because they are in, really entitled to. But I think, then again, every government, uh, every every state needs to take these two steps back and really start doing uh, something that benefits all the people uh, because they are not, uh, uh, they cannot take revenge for the wrongdoing in the same way as the uh, uh, to address this um, feeling within the victims. They need to be do it in a scientific way that actually benefits the taxpayers and the people out there. 
Yeah, well, well, I think just to, to add to that, I mean, what you're doing so well, we're going to hear about in a little bit in Norway, is you take people that have made mistakes, that have that have wronged someone, and they pay their, their dues, they spend their time where their freedom has been taken away, but that rehabilitation element creates a, a good functional member of society. So it's not about whether that person did wrong, it's not about whether they should be punished, whether they should have some sort of, of penalty for what they did, but it's when can you turn that person so they're not a threat when they come back out? And and you know, what we see sadly here in the US is you know, the recidivism is so much higher. So therefore you take a dangerous person, you incarcerate them, and then you let that dangerous person out again that may be even more dangerous once they once they're released. Exactly. Exactly. And I think uh, we're, uh, some states are doing it because I think it really um, is a way to you know, try to satisfy the voters. They think that the voters automatically want um, uh, harder and harder uh, punishment for, for criminals. But I think the reason for that is that the, most people never have been told you know, what works in prison. Uh, uh, and my government, or at least in our system in Norway, I think we have changed, uh, as you point out, the system from being, you know, solely punitive to be a system that emphasizes on rehabilitation and resettlement back to the communities, uh, and are saying that uh, the only uh, punishing element uh, within the prison system is the loss of freedom, uh, and. In our prison, we are administration, uh, admin, um, administration, the the loss of freedom, but we are also uh, spending a lot of focus on uh, making sure that these guys uh, and women in prison are coming back to the society uh, as someone's good neighbor uh, and hopefully also a taxpayer. Absolutely. Well, Cyrus, over to you for a moment. Um, I don't want to load the question. I've, I've quoted statistics myself several times, but over the last 50 years, um, just to illustrate that it's time to maybe think of something different, what has been the, the, the growth of the prison population in the US since maybe, let's say, the 70s to where we are now? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, now in the U.S., um, we are and we peaked in 2008, but we're not that far off of it um, 10 years later. Um, but we're now, I think, incarcerating um, uh, 700 per 100,000 uh, people in the U.S. Uh, Norway is incarcerating something like um, 35 for every 100,000 citizens or people in their country. Um, so you can see the difference there, and it wasn't hasn't always been that way in the U.S. Um, I don't have the specific numbers right at hand, but uh, in the late um, 60s and early 70s, there was a far a far smaller proportion of of people um, exposed to prison, far fewer number of people who were arrested um, were sent to prison. So there was a greater use of kind of community corrections and community approaches to, to responses to crime. Um, and there was talk in, in the academic and, and um, kind of professional world around prisons in the late 60s that what are we going to do with these uh, prisons when we figure this out and don't need so many anymore? Um, there was a, we worked closely with a professor of psychology and the, and the law at Santa Cruz, Craig Haney, who's a, probably the world leader in kind of understanding the 
harms of solitary confinement. And he was uh, working at that time and, and said that they all genuinely thought that, that prison populations would, would continue to go down and, and, and dwindle. Um, and in fact, obviously, we know we went in the exact opposite direction uh, to the point where most of the prisons that we work with now as a program are facilities that were built in the 90s. Uh, and they're enormous facilities. Uh, we work with a, a prison in California, Salinas Valley uh, State Prison, uh, that houses 4,000 people and essentially is five prisons within a prison. Um, uh, same in in, uh, in Oregon where we work and uh, many other places. So it's it's it really has grown in in a way that's unfathomable uh, once you kind of look at the numbers. And to Tom's point. Most people in our communities don't really understand these places, don't really know uh, the extent to which they are a part of our kind of fabric of our society. Part of that's on purpose. We've located these places in rural areas, out of view, out of sight. We don't talk about them in our public discourse. We really, unless something's gone horribly wrong, we very rarely see success stories of when a prison program has made a real difference in somebody's life for the positive. And so it's something that we just kind of live with without really interrogating. And I think that's something we really emphasize in our program and that the Norwegians do really well. So we tell our partners, you need to open your doors and let people in to see what you're doing. And you're going to make mistakes like we all make mistakes and they'll be in the newspaper. That's fine. They're already in the newspaper. Um, but you need to have transparency. You need to invite the community in to see what you're doing, the challenges you're facing, and the good that you're trying to do when you do this work well. Otherwise, the narrative's never going to change. And you know, people are going to just uh, think, hey, you know, if you're in prison, you deserve what you get, which is, uh, you know, really not a helpful or productive attitude. Um, and also, I think if people understood what what is happening to some people in prison, they they really would be aghast, and and it would correct their their impressions pretty quickly. Yeah, well, the, well I mean, I was going to go to a different topic, but while we're on that topic, paint paint the the dark picture for us because you have, you know, the orange is the new black, which seems like a you know um, a very rosy view of prison. Then you know you have some of the Hollywood movies, which is far from that. So, kind of, what is the average? What are the average dangers for an inmate in the correctional facilities in here or the UK or, or a similar prison? Well, you know, as always with kind of a, a large system and organization, it's hard to say, hard to describe the average and, and pretend that it's representative. Um, you know, I, so there's a lot of different experiences that you can have as an incarcerated person in the U.S., um, there are model programs that really help people make a positive change in their lives. Um, but I think, you know, some of the things we've seen recently in the news, in the Alabama state prison system, in the Mississippi state prison system, uh, around uh, just the pre prevalence, the pervasiveness of violence, um, the uh, kind of uh, disconnect between uh, staff and residents and the profound distrust. So I think there's a us versus them mentality between staff and incarcerated people that is generally the rule inside our jails and prisons, which creates a stressful environment for everybody, um, doesn't do much to reduce or alleviate violence, which is unfortunately prevalent. Um, I think you also see in many systems very poor access to mental care, mental health care, to support services, and also poor access to really 
solid vocational and educational programs so that you get a lot of idle time in these places. Um, it can be a lot of time spent idly surrounded by many others, you know, so in a double, double, triple cell. And that's just a very difficult environment to live in. And I would invite any listener who hasn't experienced these places to consider, um, you know, what it would be like to live day in and day out, um, you know, in a 10 by six foot cell with another adult and not much else to do uh, with your time. Um, you know, that's prison should not be fun, but uh, that's not really productive. It's not really achieving a goal. Um, so I think you can have a lot of different experiences, but in general, there's just a lot of room to do more and do better for staff, for incarcerated people. And as Tom points out, for our communities, most people get out. Most people get out. So what do we want to be coming back into our communities when we think about um, the, the, the people that are in there right now? Yeah, but I think this, this people have a little snapshot, just a, a tiny little taste of their freedom being taken away, of being told to stay inside. And look what's happened. I mean, it's not everyone. Some people have done well. Some people have reconnected with family. But a lot of my law enforcement friends have told me that, that domestic abuse has gone up, child abuse has gone up. We're seeing rioting all over the country now. So to me, that is absolutely parallel to, you know, the effects of locking someone in a cell. Like when you take away the very things that are organic to a human being, there is a negative response. And James, just that's such an important point. It's a, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's a great example of what we're all going through right now. And I just to point out, you know, people will see in the news, Tom's old prison, Bastoy, hauled in prison in Norway, this beautiful billion dollar structure. Um, and they'll say to us like, well, we're not going to have a, a, a prison that looks like a hotel. So we can't do that. And what we say to people is it, it, the building doesn't matter. It, it truly doesn't matter. It is the interactions between people. And it's this thing that the Norwegian prison service does so beautifully, which is recognize the humanity and everybody involved in these systems and to tirelessly work to create positive relationships with people and to socially interact with people. And I think we see this now in our own experience in the pandemic. The thing that some, you know, I'm, I'm sure people miss going to restaurants and bars because it's fun to go to restaurants and bars. But the thing that they're missing, the thing that we're all missing is human interaction. It's social interaction. And so many of our jails and prisons in the U.S. are built and designed and run according to policies that are expressly designed to eliminate social interaction and human interaction. And that is just at its core the problem and something that is, as I say, just absolutely counterproductive to what we think we're trying to do in these places. Yeah. Well, I want to stay with you, Cyrus, for one more um, point and then go back to Tom. We'll start talking about the Norwegian model and, and why it's so different. Um, but the the stats that I always quote in the 1970s, just so people have an understanding of the actual total um, occupancy, we had about 350,000 prisoners in the US. And now, as you said, the last 10 years, it's been about 2.2, 2.3 million prisoners. So A, as with the, the so-called war on drugs, to me, that seems like you know a failure in the way that we're doing it now. But B, as you mentioned, it seems like there are contributing factors that are incarcerating far more of our men and women. So what have been some of those policies and changes that have resulted in a 600% increase over the last 50 years? Mm. You know, I mean, you point, to, you point to one that's obviously... I mean, it's just indisputable, the war on drugs and how we've responded to addiction, drug use, um, and, you know, even s small scale distribution that's related to addiction and, and use. 
But, you know, the other one I would point to, and this is, again, like I, I look to our Norwegian friends as a model, uh, how we treat violent crime has really changed. And it's gotten really um, uh, severe. And part of the reason there are so many people in our prisons right now is because they get stacked up under long and sometimes permanent sentences. So we have a lot of people serving very long sentences um, for, you know, admittedly for causing pain and, and harm and, and, and hurting another person, um, whether it be assault, you know, murder, manslaughter, uh, for violent crime. Um, but in Norway, they have those same people who've committed those same crimes in their prisons. And they view it, I'll, I'll let Tom speak for how they view it, I should say, but, but I'll, I'll just say they don't have as long sentences as we have, um, and they have a better outcome. Uh, there is a kind of societal thing that we have to just grapple with, with how do we want to think about and respond to violence? Um, because you're absolutely right that it's we must do differently around drug use and addiction. But even then, we'll be left with overcrowded prisons. We are a violent society in the U.S., and we do have, unfortunately, a lot of violence. But how we respond to it from a criminal justice perspective it's something we don't talk about enough. And, and I think as a result, we just get this kind of continuing cycle. We're not really interrupting cycles of violence. We're not helping people, you know, um, live a healthier, um, you know, less violent life. And I, I think that's just a, how we sentence violence, crime, and then what we do with those people once we have them in custody. It's just really a big part of this problem with overcrowding and growing numbers. Absolutely. And I think it's putting the correctional officers in danger, it's putting the police officers in danger. And obviously, as we've seen, you know, there are mistakes made by law enforcement that result in civilians dying as well. So to me, um, you know, these are all pawns in a much bigger game. And we're all people understand all these pieces, they are the police, they are the corrections, they are the prisoners, they are the civilians, we're all in the same game. And so we have to, you know, reverse engineer how this happened and, and work at how we can fix it. So Tom, back to you. I, you know, we've, we've done one episode already because of what we've seen in Holden, what we've seen in Bastoy. The, the, the America, UK, whatever it is, we need to have the humility to look around the countries of the world and, and ask, like, who's doing it well and how can we model it? So just going to walk us through for people who haven't heard episode 73. How, what was the Norwegian system like? And then how did it morph to the system that you guys have and, and describe that? Yeah, it's kind of a long story. Uh, you know, uh, we used to be Vikings. We, we used to raid and rape uh, ourselves around Europe. Uh, that's how it was in around year 1000. But from year 1000 to now, something happened on the way. And I think probably the, the, the major change came uh, just after the Second World War. I think before the Second World War, our prison system really could resemble any prison system, uh, both in America and Europe. But... What happened was that during the Second World War, uh, a lot of what would become our most central pol uh, politicians uh, after the war, they were uh, imprisoned in concentration camps and prisons uh, in Norway and Europe during the war by the Germans, the Nazis. And uh, I think most of them, they uh, after the war, uh, had the thought that we will not uh, do it this way. They really knew what uh, incarceration and the loss of freedom, you know, could be. So that uh, uh, became a kind of liberal way, a wave uh, around uh, uh, in, in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and we had a white paper that came in the last part of the 70s that 
uh, was written by the the um, uh, Social Democratic Party, uh, and it was considered in Norway to be quite radical in the sense that uh, uh, it addressed um, uh, uh, a lot of topics like isolation, um, prison culture, the way the staff should work with inmates. Before this white paper, the, our staff, our correctional officers, was they were merely guards. Uh, there was a lot of violence in the prisons. Uh, it was uh, very little human contact between staff and inmates. Uh, and that white paper was followed up by another similar white paper in the 80s. And then the transition really, really began quite, quite rapidly. Uh, you had... Uh, a lot of prison governors at the time that took these white papers really seriously and were starting to writing very radical uh, strategy papers for the prisons, like, for instance, Oslo prison. And they were stating that from now on, uh, our correctional officers shall not be merely guards anymore. They should work actively with the inmates in order to, to help them uh, to uh, live a life after release without crime and, and drugs. So that kind of changed the role of the correctional officers quite uh, drastically. And in the beginning of that transition, it was, it was a lot of noise in our prisons. You had a lot of riots, uh, you had a lot, lot of disturbance, we had a lot of headlines in our papers stating that, uh, you know, the the, uh, the management in our prisons are even worse uh, than uh, the inmates. You know, those were statements from, from our unions. But then I think a lot of people saw, especially within the corrections, that these tran transitions that really led to uh, much safer environments for the staff in prison. The number of violent incidents uh, went down quite drastically. Uh, the number of fights between inmates also decreased quite drastically. Uh, and uh, uh, in the uh, end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, the, the government started to you know, really put a lot of energy into uh, reoffending uh, uh, um, uh, measurements. Uh, and I think when they saw the results from the, these measurements and found that the actual reoffending rate in Norway was maybe as low as 30% on a national level, they really got the, the, uh, the thumbs up for that. That transition really had worked. It, it took some years, but uh, I think if you ask any correctional officer now that if they would you know go back to the to the old days they would say no i think they find themselves in a position where they like go to work uh that they like the work they're doing uh, they feel safe uh when they're going to, to work in prisons which i think is you know really basic for any correctional officer is the feeling of safety if you don't feel safe in your working environment uh you cannot be expected to do a good job helping inmates either. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So I think during uh, a period of 30 years, we were able to transition our correctional system from being a quite violent, uh, bad place to a place where reoffending rates became quite low and also where the number of violent incidents is, is at a minimum. Beautiful. Well, there's a great Vice documentary that, you know, follows you guys and, and goes into the, the prison with you. Um, but for people listening, can you describe literally what the prison looks like? And, and, and I think a good description would be walk me through a day in the life of a prisoner at Bastoy. 
Well, Boste is what we call a, a low security prison in Norway. But we have a, a quite important principle that is, uh, uh, is for all the prisons in Norway, something we call principle of normalization. Uh, and that principle, it, it states that the everyday life in prison should be as close to the normal life on the outside as possible. Uh, this is so because we recognize that the prisons are, also, uh, b- besides being an instrument for taking away people's freedom, but it's uh, uh, even more an instrument for training people to, for the life after prison. Uh, and if we are able to create the everyday life within any prison, for instance, as Boste, as normal, close to the normal life on the outside as possible, we believe that uh, the rehabilitation process and the transition from being a prisoner to a normal citizen on, on the other side is it's much smoother. So on a prison like Boste, you you will uh, have to wake yourself up in the morning, uh, eat your breakfast uh, at the house you live. You will be present for, for work uh, or school. And in a prison like Boste, which is on an island, the idea is to 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 build uh, or or um, live in a village, small village community that kind of resembles a, a small village community on on the mainland on the outside of the prison, and the inmates and the staff together they are running this village as a normal village with all the function you will find in a in a normal village you will find is a car repair shop it's a cafeteria cafe. Uh, it's a kitchen. Uh, the inmates operate a ferry company that is uh, taking prisoner staff back and forth from the island uh, and visitors. Uh, and the everyday life there on this island is all about, you know, uh, being a citizen in this village. That is so very valuable training for uh, the life they will live when they are released and they are becoming someone's neighbor. Uh, we're not only learning them, you know, uh, uh, valuable tools they can use or trades, but we also learn them how to take res- responsibility for themselves, but for the, also their surround- surroundings. Like when you're living in a normal village in Norway, you're expecting as a inhabitant in that village to take re- some responsibility for the na- your neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, you know this old saying that it takes a, a village to raise a child. You will see the same uh, at, Bos- at Boste, uh, because there, when you have this village-like environment, the inmates, they will start to uh, give each other feedback uh, on uh, work being done. As we say to the inmates there that, well, if you guys don't operate the ferry, you can't, can't have visits. Uh, if you don't want to work in the, in the prison shop, you have nowhere to buy your groceries. So it's all about learning them the importance of taking responsibility. Because in any prison environment, the first thing we do in any country is take away uh, their responsibilities. Like we had, I had this inmate in my prison in Boston that gave me a quite good example that it was a very profiled inmate. And he said that, Tom, you know what? In most high security prisons in Norway or in, in most countries, you have so little responsibilities during the day. They tell you when to eat, they tell you what to eat, they tell you when to go to the toilet or take a shower, and they almost uh, are speeding, uh, feeding you with a spoon. And if you, during a long prison sentence, have no training in taking, in taking responsibility, how can we demand that just because we're releasing them from prison, that they uh, in an instant should start taking responsibility for something if they haven't done it for like 14 years? 
It's impossible to demand that. So I think it's so important to give them training in how to take responsibilities and why it's so important to take responsibilities. And we give them that training in Boston. Well, you know, it's funny as well, because that ties in so closely with many conversations I've had on mental health and that lack of control. And even even just a regular office environment or a fire department or a police police department where you have a supervisor that is a micromanager, you know, does has no trust in you. As you said, you get told when to show up, what to do. That is absolutely linked to poor mental health. So, you know, what you've just described is is another layer of where you can empower the prisoner. Maybe they're not looking for then that control somewhere else through violence, through sexual assault, whatever it is, but they're able to focus that ownership in a skill, in in an educational path. Um, but you're also doing you know, a positive uh, process as far as the mental health side as well. Yeah, I think you gave a, a key word here, which is empowerment. Uh, because we are not going to, as staff, we are not going to, uh, do the job for them. They need to, to learn to do it themselves because that is about, you know, taking responsibilities. We don't want to educate people to go um, on social benefits when they are released. We want to create taxpayers that can contribute to uh, to the society by paying tax. And not only because that's, you know, uh, financially very wise, but also it gives the released inmates a very high rate of self-value because they know they are contributing to something that is actually much bigger than themselves, which is the society. And I think it's like deep within any human, the, the, the need to be a part of something that is bigger than yourself. And I think by you know paying tax, go, go to job every morning, you really will get a sense that you actually are, are belonging somewhere. You're not, you're, you're not on uh, liability to the society, uh, but you have actually became an asset to the society. And I think... Uh, being trained correctly uh, in a good way in prison will make ex-prisoners become that asset to the society. Yeah, well, that's, that makes perfect sense. Now, I know one barrier to entry that we have in a lot of you know prisons in, again, UK, US, is that criminal record that hangs over their head that, that stops them from being able to find employment. Do you guys have a different philosophy on that as well? Well, I think uh, depending on the crime you have done, uh, I think uh, throughout the the, the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, some trades now, they demand uh, uh, a police record that you show that you have a police record in uh, order to, ha- um, uh, to have certain kinds of jobs. Uh, more or less, uh, that is about, you know, uh, that you haven't done any sexual crimes. For instance, if you're applying for a job as a teacher or a kindergarten assistant or um, within sports. Uh, but I think... In my experience, uh, the especially the um, the private companies are uh, don't have that much hesitation in hiring ex uh, ex convicts coming from prison. I was kind of surprised because I've had a lot of meetings during the years with both um, uh, employers union and employee unions, and they both are saying the same thing that they have as organizations as employers they have a kind of responsibility towards the the, um, the society to also help ex-inmates finding jobs. So I think in my seven years at Boston, I think it's maybe just a, a little handful of inmates that we have released that hasn't had any job to go to. Uh, and I think probably that's 
one of the greatest job uh, we can do within Mets is assisting us to assist them to find uh, a job uh, on the outside. Absolutely. Otherwise, they're going to just ferry back into crime. And and yeah, yeah, what you said with the sexual crimes and you know environments where people might be in danger, then that's just complete common sense. Now, when we talk about Bastoy, I want to be very clear. There are extremes, you know. So, for example, and I won't say his name because it's not worthy, but the piece of shit, excuse my language, that murdered 77 kids in the uh, Workers' Youth League summer camp um, incident in Norway. He is locked away in a maximum security prison because he is a complete sociopath. That being said... It, tell me some of the the crimes that some of the men and women in these style prisons, uh, you know, the Bastoy style prisons, have done. Because I think some people listening might think these we're just talking about pickpockets and you know um, check fraud people, but there's quite a, a gamut of crimes that these men and women are in for. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a very common myth uh, surrounding a uh, place like Bastoy, uh, even in Norway. That. You know, the people who are incarcerated there are, you know, uh, petty thieves uh, or, or drunken drivers. But the fact is the, uh, the opposite. Um, I think the average sentence for the guys at Bastogne is something like six and a half years. And for Norway, that, that's kind of a, a long sentence. And I think from the 125 men there serving a sentence at any given time, I think, think at least 20 or 25 of them are convicted murderers. Uh the, the the average uh, crime they have committed uh, is uh, severe violence uh, and or drugs. You'll find some sexual criminal criminals there. You'll find some white collar criminals there. So you have really the whole variety. But what they have in common is that they have very long sentences. Uh, so they have this you know huge potential for wrongdoing and crime and violence on paper. But even though they have that. Uh, I think we are looking back now on over 30 years uh, with only one major uh, violent incident uh, on this island. It's absolutely incredible. Well, Cyrus, I want to bring you back in again. So now that Tom's kind of you know, laid out what the uh, Norwegian model looks like, talk to me about the genesis of Amend and then you know which of the prison systems in the US were the first to kind of jump on board when it came to exploring that. Yeah. Uh, so, gosh, you know, so we've been doing this, developing this with our uh, with the Norwegian um, prison service since 2014, 15, um, you know, and it's been kind of a slowly evolving thing. Uh, you know, in the first few years we were really focusing on leadership. Um, so directors of corrections, a few wardens, that kind of thing, seeing some um, some positive change, some some good results but really a mixed bag. Um, and for a lot of understandable reasons, I mean, leadership changes, you know, this is just one thing and people move on uh, and you've got all your kind of eggs in that basket um, for kind of seeing a dramatic change forward. And, and that can, it can be really disruptive. So, you know, a couple of years ago we did, we really broadened our thinking and started to say like the start of our program is um, leadership, but it's a small part. And ultimately, we want to be working with as many uh, men and women in uniform doing the work day in and day out as we can be. And we want to be um, speaking to those people directly and uh, sending them a message and giving them the skills and tools they need to really um, live correctional work as a, as a calling and as a profession worthy of, you know, of 
of dignity and and respect. You know, I I interact with a lot of correctional staff, and one question I always ask people is like, if you're at a birthday party for kid for your kids, and somebody asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? And all and many many people say to me, oh, I say I work for the government. I say, oh, you don't tell them what you do, and they say, no, 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 I don't do that. And I said, well, why not? I said, well, you know, I don't know. I just, you just get a lot of looks. You never know how people are going to respond and that kind of thing. You ask somebody that in, in Norway and, and, you know, there's pride in their work. You know, it's, it's uh, they're not hiding what they do for a living or, or worried about kind of wearing their uniform in the parking lot of the Walmart, you know, which is something I also hear. So we really do have kind of taken this approach of, you know, correctional work is important work. Uh, it should be professionalized, you know, always more and more as any profession is opportunities for more and more training. Um, and that's really become our focus in the last couple of years. And I'll just say really quickly, James, cause you, you mentioned this, but we, we didn't we kind of skipped on this point you make about giving people, um, at the line level, at the front lines, um, real responsibility and real, uh, independence and empowerment to make decisions and to be creative and solve problems in their work. It's so important. It's important for all of us. And in corrections, it just, that's gone away. It's not there. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a response to overcrowding. So you've got all these people. Well, the only way to manage those people is with blanket policies. And then you get these correctional officers on the floor who feel completely bound by policy, no decision making. And they feel like they've gotten, they get all the accountability when it goes wrong, but none of the responsibility to make it go right. And that's something we really want to change in our with our program and our work. We want to delegate decision making and responsibility, and really downward and really empower people on the line um, to to do this work in a, in a positive way. Um, so it's kind of a long winding response to your answer, but it's just that's kind of has been the evolution of our program, and that's something that you know as we learn more and more from our colleagues in Norway, that that's one of the things we've really brought in a lot and, and focus on a lot these days. Brilliant. Well, I had Brandon Kelly on the show, who is the superintendent of the Oregon State Penitentiary. And he had, you know, obviously done a visit through you guys. And one of the things we discussed is the knee jerk that he'd heard. And I, I hear too, you know, when I talk about, you know, Tom and Bastoy or Portugal and drug decriminalization or, you know, whatever it is, is, oh, but it's different. That would never happen here. And my counter to him, and it's funny because it's the same, Brandon said the same thing, is, but why not? We're, we're all human beings. So to have that defeatist attitude, we, we've already got the, the trail of, of, of death, the trail of bodies from these systems that aren't working. So if it works in another country, we're not that dissimilar. Yes, it, it, it definitely won't be an overnight success by any means, but you know, even if you start making changes like they did with the healing garden in, in his prison, you know, each step we, we, make towards a different approach, a more holistic approach, a more organic healing approach that's going to create functional members of the community rather than more violent offenders, you know, we've got absolutely nothing to lose. So so what's your, sorry, it's a very, it's not even a question, it's just me making a statement, but what's your um, uh, reaction to the naysayers of the Norwegian model being brought to the U.S.? Yeah, you know, well, I'm, you know, I, I knew you talked to Brandon. I'm so glad you, you caught up with Brandon. He's he's the best. And if people haven't heard that conversation, he's a remarkable leader, just in a general sense, and just um, I think 
was already, but then through this program has become more of a kind of visionary guy in terms of the future of corrections in the U.S. And he's going to start working with us a little bit as a trainer and, and kind of go deeper with us in our program because he's just um, he's been really remarkable at, at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I think Brandon hits on it. You hit on it as well. I mean, this is kind of the core of our program. We're talking about general principles. We're talking about a kind of set of ideas and then applying them to your particular context in a way that makes sense for you. So, of course, prisons in the U.S. are not the same as prisons in Norway. Um, we all have our own unique problems in our own institutions and organizations. But, you know, I think that it is it is possible that we can all kind of agree on a common humanity and on what a public safety mission really means and how and what it means to achieve public safety in our communities and public safety in our prisons because these you know when you when you go to a prison like Salinas Valley and they would say it themselves so I'm not not pointing any fingers they ring their alarms multiple times a day I mean there are violent incidents multiple times daily um, that's not a safe environment and that's not good for anybody so how do we really achieve public safety um, and what are some kind of core principles uh, that we can kind of call on to do that. And and the, the other, you know, the other kind of thing we'll say to people, and this is something we stole from um, a guy named Harald Fosker uh, in Norway, who was the kind of godfather of their uh, training academy. Um, but we just say, hey, you know, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And so if you're telling me you're absolutely happy with the way it is now, then, okay, I guess there's not much for us to talk about. But otherwise, if you think there's something to change, well, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So what are we going to change and how are we going to think about that change? And we have not, you know, I've not been in every prison in the U.S. I've not been in every system, though I've been in many. I have not really had a conversation where, where somebody's really been willing to say to me, we're all good here. This is all set. No problem. No change needed. Um, so there are a lot of openings to have this conversation. Uh, I think if people want to dig their heels in on the differences between Norway and the U.S. as a country, um, you know, that's their prerogative, but I think it's it's short-sighted, and, and the more we can get into details in a more nuanced conversation, uh, my experience is that people are open-minded um, and willing to kind of acknowledge the similarities as well as the differences. Absolutely. Well, of the progressive, um, you know, prison governors, superintendents, whoever it is, um, to ex tell me some of the success stories you've seen with some sort of implementation of this philosophy here in the U.S., yeah, so the, the two systems we've worked longest with now are the Oregon Department of Corrections and the uh, North Dakota Department of Corrections. And we are, as I mentioned, beginning to work with um, some prisons in California and uh, with a few other systems now um, this year uh, around the country. And, and hopefully we'll be at a place where we can really start to, to grow. We're doing work with more. You know, but one of the, uh, I'll point to another institution in Oregon Snake River Correctional Institution in the eastern part of the state. So it's actually outside of Boise, Idaho, um, on Mountain Time there. And uh, they have in their facility the solitary confinement unit that is essentially for anybody in the Oregon State Prison System who's failed out of every other place. So you get sent there if you are essentially incorrigibly violent or, um, you know, have so many disciplinary problems that you, you can't be successful anymore. And we've worked with the staff there and with some um, staff from Norway, part of something called the resource team, the men resource team, to give them tools to work with those guys 
uh, day in and day out to make every day a little bit better with the goal of returning those people safely to general population. And obviously that's a work in progress. These are, you know, um, people who are really difficult in a prison environment and, of course, who have done violent things inside prison, many if not all in the community as well. So it's it's not a, a magic wand, but they've been successfully able to graduate guys back to general population. I'm thinking of three right off the top of my head who have spent decades in and out of solitary confinement units, uh, who had zero trust in the system, um, wouldn't talk to an officer on the first day they tried to do this. Um, but, you know, with a really measured Norwegian approach, they've been able to have some success, bring the population down in those units. And I think a big thing as well has been convincing their colleagues that, like, there's nobody that you need to just give up on. You know, you can give people a chance and see if they can be supported to make a positive change. And it's been really eye-opening for them and for us. And that's been a really kind of an example of a really positive um, impact that we've, we're, we're hoping to do more with. Yeah, well, just as a side note, I, by chance, about a month ago, found myself in Ohio, my wife's um, from there originally, and went and visited the Ohio State Reformatory. So a very unique perspective for the general civilians to get an insight into literally, you know, what a prison looks like. Now it's, it's obviously a little run down now. It didn't look exactly like that before, but you get to see the space of the cells. You get to see, you know, the, you know, the, the toilet facilities, the solitary, um, confinement spaces. And, you know, one glaring thing is that there's no nature. There's no daylight. You know, there's probably a complete, uh, lack of understanding if it's even day or night, especially in the solitary area. So walk me through again, the Norwegian model, you have, you know, houses and it's a community and it's on the island, but, you know, people are out in nature every single day. The Oregon State um, Healing Garden now, you know, we have, you know, they have that space now where they can be around nature within the prison walls. So what are some of the the changes in philosophy that you think would be most beneficial rather than encapsulating the prisoners and the guards in a concrete windowless structure? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just quickly say, so on the other end of that kind of spectrum of the example I was just giving is, is um, people in the North Dakota Department of Corrections really re, um, re-envisioned and kind of remade their minimum security environment on the Bastoy model. And it's that that same thing you're just talking about, kind of recognizing the healing quality of nature, the importance of being in touch with the kind of physical world. And you know, when it's a it's a farm, you know, it's an old farm on the on the um, what river is that? On a river there in Bismarck, North Dakota. And uh, they used to have all this part of it that that um, prisoners couldn't go on. You know, all this out of bounds. And they just said, well, these are guys in minimum security prison, so they've earned their way here. We obviously believe that they can be here. So why can't they also just walk the paths on the grounds? You know, why why are we holding them to this little narrow patch, you know, in the middle of this of this farm? And so that was like one change they just made. And 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 you know, sure enough, nobody ran off. You know, they just people were getting close to release. They wanted to be successful and get out and put this behind them. And um, so nobody ran off, but of course the, the temperature goes down. The prisoners are appreciative, um, and and everybody spreads out a little bit. It's a little bit more breathing room. So, you know, I think that's one thing is just appreciating um, how 
I guess on the flip side, kind of how detrimental it is to people to uh, be put in these environments um, that are just completely stripped of anything you'd recognize, you know, without doing a bunch of horror stories or whatever. There's a prison we work with in Oregon where they've designed it so that the yards are all interior. So if you're a prisoner there, you're never in an environment where you can see more than 60 feet in front of you, maybe 60 yards, I should say. Um, and so when they get released from that place, their eyesight's messed up for weeks or months. Like they, they lose the ability to like see down to the horizon. And even staff, when they work double shifts in there, have a hard to have a minute before they, they sit in their cars in the parking lot before they want to drive off and let their eyes adjust to being able to see so far. So that's like, and that's not a crazy thing. That's, that's the kind of thing we do to these environments in the U.S. all the time. Um, so I think just relooking at our environments and, and just asking what are we doing to people, staff and prisoners in these places, and how, what changes can we make is, is a first step. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to Tom um, because I want to contrast. So one of the things that I talk about a lot, as I mentioned before, is drug prohibition. And I see the ripple effects on, you know, on, on mental health for a start. I think, I think that most addiction has its roots in mental ill health. But we see the ripple effects in the violent. And we say that, you know, the U.S. is a very violent society. I think a lot of that comes from from the illicit drug trade, to be honest, and all the, the um, branches that stem off that. I see the ripple effects in South America, Central America. I see the opium fields funding terrorism in Afghanistan. So this, to me, seems like another area that we need to address. But before we kind of delve into that, what do you see when it comes to the the impact of addiction in Norway, Tom? And then what's their philosophy of treating the addicts? Well, I think since the 70s or, or last part of the 60s, I think uh, the approach from the Norwegian government, as you know, we have been you know, a part of uh, the war on drugs uh, in our society. I think um, when you compare Norway to the rest of Europe, I think a lot of drug smugglers were very surprised when they were caught smuggling drugs to Norway, uh, big amounts of drugs, because they've uh, got a 21-year sentence for that. Uh, you know, we treated drug smugglers very, very hard. Uh, because of the war of drugs. Uh, I think you know, maybe the last 10 years, there's been a much uh, bigger dis uh, discussion in the public on how we should uh, you know, treat uh, drugs in our society. And I think probably the biggest change uh, came when the daughter of our ex-Minister uh, for Foreign Affairs uh, was you know, publicly exposed as a you know, heavy drug user. And... Her father, uh, the, the ex-Minister uh, uh, of Foreign Affairs, he said that we should start to treat drug addi uh, addiction more as a health issue rather than a, uh, than a criminal issue. And from that, he did, did, did so in a speech uh, on television uh, in, uh, on another occasion, but he did that. And I think from that point on, uh, something changed in our society that from that day on, uh, I think both politicians, uh, officials, and the general public suddenly started to rethink drugs from being something that people looked upon as, you know, a, a, a just crime to more being a, a health issue. That the people that were addicted were, were sick. 
Uh, and I think that discussion is still a living discussion. I think it's not; it hasn't landed yet. Uh, when it comes to our prisons, I think we say that something like 60% uh, of our prison population uh, are drug addicts. Um, and we address that problem uh, from kind of two, two sides. One being uh, that we want to prevent uh, drugs coming into our prisons. And we do that by, you know, a different variety of security measures. But I think also during the past 10 years, we have emphasized even more on drug rehabilitation programs, uh, motivating inmates to do something about a uh, drug program, program, and treating uh, their drug addiction more in an individual way uh, rather than uh, on a systematic um, uh, level. For instance, if uh, an inmate in a Norwegian prison today are caught uh, with a positive urine sample for using drugs, for instance, uh, there's no, no longer uh, an automatic uh, 10 days in solitary confinement like it used to be when I started off as a prison officer in 1992. But now there's a discussion on what will this inmate profit from? Uh, what will make, what can we do so he doesn't do it again? And that could be some kind of a, a reprimand or, or uh, lose his rights to unescorted leave, for instance or social leaves, uh, but it could also be that he will have to uh, take some kind of a uh, drug treatment program. So we, we now are addressing uh, the drug issue in our prisons in a much wider scale than we used to, uh, because uh, in the beginning, as I said, it was merely just punitive, everything that happened that was um, uh, regarding drugs. Well, that's brilliant to hear. I think we we talked about this when when we spoke the first time. But back to you, Cyrus. I sat with the man in Portugal, uh, Dr. João Goulao, who spearheaded decriminalization and completely reversed their horrendous epidemic that they had in Portugal. Um, and you know, I've heard of, of Switzerland and some other countries around the world that have done the same thing with incredible results. With you having the background education, with you being exposed to prisons, not only here in the U.S., but in, in different countries and being aware of the violence and the crime, what is your philosophy on the decriminalization or legalization of all addiction, not selling, not smuggling, but of, of addicts and creating patients that can then heal rather than prisoners? Yeah, I'm. you know, I... <clears throat> obviously not the kind of core focus of our program. So I, I wouldn't want to speak as if I had a particular expertise, but I just say with, as you say, the experience that we have and the knowledge we have from a public health perspective, um, it seems very clear. I, I don't, uh, I'm not aware of any strong evidence to the contrary um, that criminalizing use as you're describing and, and criminalizing addiction is um, counterproductive uh, to the goal of limiting use or eliminating addiction. These are health problems. They should be met with a health response. Um, that said, what we've seen in the U.S., particularly with the opioid epidemic, is um, if you don't meet it with a health response, it doesn't get better. So, you know, we do need to decriminalize in, in the exact way you're saying, um, but we also need to ramp up our uh, addiction services and our uh, evidence-based treatment practices. You know, one of the things that's true in the community and also in prisons and is a real problem is that there's a 
stigma around medication-assisted treatment, um, meaning drugs like methadone and, and buprenorphine to treat opioid disorder. Um, those are medical treatments. It's not trading one addiction for another in any in any real sense. Um, and yet they are often um, denied people who are incarcerated or just inaccessible uh, to people in many, many communities around the country. So uh, I couldn't agree with you more around decriminalizing use and addiction, but we'll just add to it that we need to be serious about it from a health perspective and from a health infrastructure perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's just it. We, we're seeing a mental health crisis. I mean, pretty much most people in the prisons, if you think about it, it's pretty glaring that they have some sort of mental health issue, whether it's, you know, perpetuating through violence or addiction or theft, you know, whatever it is, there, there's a, there's turmoil going on mentally. And even in the violence we're seeing on, on these little pockets of streets in, in the US at the moment, you know, that people are questioning, well, why are they, you know, burning down their, their own department or why is that, you know, kid running around with a gun? Again, to me, I see a bunch of, of mentally ill, you know, men and women with no direction lashing out at each other. So I think, like you said, nationally, we we truly need to address the mental health epidemic, and that includes addiction. Once we start looking at that instead of locking everyone away or creating this horrendous tension between civilians and law enforcement or, you know, whatever other uh, polarizing elements we throw, you know, fuel on the fire... The underlying thing to me is that we are an extremely affluent country that should be as happy, if not happier, than anywhere else on the planet. But we have some of the least healthy, both mentally and physically, people on the planet. Yeah, couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I think Tom said it really nicely when they started asking themselves, when somebody has drug use in the prison what will they profit from our response? What's the response that will help them make a different decision or, or just, or be able to address, you know, addiction in a, in a healthy way and, and kind of put it behind them. And I think in our country and certainly in our prison and jail systems, we need to do a lot more of that. Like, what are we, try- are we trying to solve this problem or are we just trying to kind of um, isolate it, set it aside, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist? Um, I think we do too much uh, ignoring or stigmatizing and not enough genuine investment and genuine commitment to solving these problems and to helping individuals solve these problems. Absolutely. Well, and, and I talk about this project a lot. You know, there, there's ownership. So each individual on planet Earth has control of their own life. And I've had some amazing stories of men and women that have come through a prison system and, you know, usually through the help of a mentor in some way, shape or form, but have turned everything around. And, you know, it might even be despite what the environment they were in. And that's the other side of the coin, though. It's not taking blame away from the individual that's made the crime or the individual that's morbidly obese or the individual that's living under a bridge or is addicted to to opiates. But it's creating an environment that maximizes the possibility for that person to find their way back onto a healthy ground. But if we just talk about ownership and lock them away and that's it, then we're failing that person. But then again, if we victimize every prisoner and don't put any responsibility on them, we also miss the point. So that middle ground of how can we create an environment that will enable and empower these men and women to find that straight and narrow path again. That is a conversation we need to be having. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and you see this in a Norwegian prison. There's a misconception that it's just soft 
that's not the case. There's more accountability. Uh, it's more demanding of incarcerated people in the Norwegian prisons, I think, than I see in the U.S. prisons. In U.S. prisons, it's more punitive, like the, the negative consequences can be far greater, but the, the accountability isn't really there because there's no relationship of trust, there's no kind of sense that um, there's going to be a, 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 you know, if I do differently, I can actually have a positive kind of outcome as well. And so that that idea of kind of personal responsibility and accountability is so important. And I think the Norwegians really do it well and do it better than we do it in a, in a, in a way that I think surprises some people. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to Tom in a second. But one more thing while it's, while it's in my head, um, staying with you, Cyrus. I've heard a lot of dialogue about the three-strike rule, and I hear from my law enforcement brothers and sisters how that creates far more danger on the streets for them because you get a three-striker, you know, and they're they're about to be pulled over with their third strike, and that creates a feeling of helplessness, and and sadly, you know, either results in suicide of of the citizen or attempted murder or murder of the police officer. So, what is your opinion of specifically the three-strike rule and you know the impact that's had? Yeah. Well, uh, I think um, I don't like the rule. Uh, I think I, I, I met one guy, one inmate uh, in a prison called CMC in California. I was there in in, in February, uh, and he was quite young guy. I think he was like twenty three year old, and he he was there on this rule uh, three strike uh, and out, and he was actually looking forward to a quite long prison sentence uh, because of. Three not that really serious, uh, serious um, uh, um, uh, criminal acts. Uh, it was more more like theft, you know, uh, shop. Uh, uh, what we would call petty theft here, uh, from a house and one shop, and um, uh, he was holding up a, a, a shop with a, with a knife as well, I think. But I think he, he was looking at something like the, I think twenty years in prison. It, it was really a, a horrendous long sentence. For this very very young guy that really had the whole of his life uh, ahead of him, and while if you if you give a young person like that a really really long prison sentence that is almost as long as he has lived, you are practically taking his you know the, his future away because that is his you know the the years which he if he wasn't convicted would use to you know for, form his personality to take an education. To all the, 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 those stuff, but instead, we are putting him into an environment for 20 years that is hostile, really unhealthy, uh, and it's not not only him that is going to pay that price, um, because I think the ones who are paying a really higher price for that uh, three strikes than us is the general public. This guy, this guy is going to be someone's neighbor at some time, and. He will have like uh, uh, 20 years living uh, outside of prison, but he will have 20 years within the prison, which is a hostile environment uh, where, where he had um, uh, been exposed to drugs, violence, and a lot of stuff that the general public doesn't need. But he will be their neighbor coming out from 20 years in, in an uh, American prison, and he will be a really, really bad and dangerous neighbor. I'm sure. So I don't really like that law at all. And Cyrus, same question for you. Yeah, you know, I, I would just say that the, the law, the, the principle that, that 
animates that law is deterrence. The idea that if you stack up these really horrible sentences um, on, you know, repeat crime, you'll deter people from committing the crime. And there's just really not not any evidence that supports that. Um, it, it's the, the thing that works as an effective deterrent is swift and certain justice. And you would and typically even like a short jail sentence or no sentence, but another kind of punishment is a, is a, is a more effective deterrent. You know, just as people, we just have a hard time imagining something like 30 years in prison. Oh, this is 30 years in prison, not, not 10. Okay. Well then I'll change my decisions. It just doesn't really work that way. And so even just the idea that that law was based on, there's just no real evidence behind it. Don't think it works. And I don't think we see that it works, but what it does produce as Thomas pointed to is a lot of injustice and a lot of people who end up serving long sentences for, you know, if you ask anybody in the street, like, should you be in 30 years for, you know, three kind of uh, property theft crimes? Does that make sense? And I think most people would say no. Because I think that's a very good example, Cyrus. And um, I think if you look upon uh, crime being committed, at least in Norway, but I think that's very typical for most countries is that if you have people that are on the streets and they are uh, high on drugs, they are in a very bad mental state and they're committing crime, I think they never ever stop to consider whether they got get will get one year of prison for that or 20 years of prison for the, the crime they're about to commit because they're not simply there uh, <laughs> in their minds. They're, uh, you know, uh, complete uh, elsewhere. And I think the ones that we are, you know, uh, thinking of uh, uh, is the one we see in films, you know, the Hannibal Lecters, the cynical, really crazy types that plan their crimes way ahead, very cynically. Those might understand uh, that, okay, and take into consideration, if I do that now, I'll get like 30 years in prison or 10 years in prison. But a drug addict, a mentally disturbed person, a, a drunk person will never, ever uh, stop to consider whether to get 15 or 20 years. No, exactly. Well, another area that I want to just kind of tack on before we, we kind of go do some, <clears throat> excuse me, before we go to some wrap up questions as I trip over my tongue, um, is just the, again, the ripple effect of the way we're doing at the moment. So, you know, we're seeing the tension between police and some groups at the moment. I've witnessed, you know, numerous police officers murdered just in the, the Orlando Orange County area where I've worked. Then we hear about, you know, the Khalif Browders of the world, you know, they get lost in the judicial system and end up, you know, getting out finally and then taking their own life because of the trauma they went through. So the, another thing that I think people don't understand is if we find a better way of doing this and we, and we couple it with maybe policies like, um, you know, the, the legalization of drugs. So we're not having these swelling, overcrowded prisons. Is that's more funding to train our police officers better to put two to a car to, as you mentioned, you know, tr increase training within the prisons, increase relationships in the prisons. And then also when people are in the system to then funnel through in, you know, a, a good amount of time. I mean, the number of people that we have in the jail system who are innocent. But they had to sit in a cell for six months a year before they can go in front of a judge and then be released. So, and then we have obviously all these horrendous, um, wrongfully accused cases too. So Cyrus, with you first, if, if we had more like a Norwegian system, the budget that we have at the moment for corrections and law enforcement, what would be the impact of that? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's it would be monumental. I mean, we we do you know behind um, higher education, uh, most states' second biggest kind of line item is corrections in terms of an agency. We spend a lot of money um, in, uh, locking people up, and it is money that could be spent in other areas of our of our communities. Um, preventing that from happening. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about school to prison pipeline and how kind of breakdowns in other kind of institutions, whether it be education or community health, kind of lead to these ballooning prison populations. And then the money goes there in response. It's just this way. And, and I, you know, it's, it's odd, but because it's not very consistent with our kind of American sense of ourselves and, and how what we pride ourselves on. But it's extremely reactive, extremely reactive. We're, we're not proactively solving these problems. Um, and so I think investing in those other areas, thinking critically about how we can kind of get out of this mess in the way you're describing, um, you know, really makes a lot of sense. I, I wish we, we could we would do that and, and think more um, more long term about kind of these problems. Well, Tom, back over to you just to kind of put a bow on this conversation before we do transition. Um, explain to me the impact on the recidivism rates since you changed the model in Norway. And then if you wouldn't mind contrasting them with the ones that we have in the UK or the US or similar um, uh, models at the moment. Well, I think as I, as I mentioned before, uh, I believe we have a reoffending rate for now that is uh, a little less than 30%, uh, which is, you know, uh, on a global, um, from a global point of view, kind of low. Uh, I think in most uh, European countries and in the United States, you will find reoffending rates in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and I think this is about the transition we had uh uh, which I was explaining that happened like 30 years ago. But I think probably the, the biggest tool, the biggest result of that transition uh, can be kind of summarized in one word. And that word is, is respect. I think the moment the correctional officers you know, started to treat the inmate with respect, they was actually respected back. And I think... Uh, like you, Cyrus, was just uh, addressing, uh, you know, all the unrest you see on the streets in the United States these days with, you know, uh, people killing police officers, police officers ki killing citizens. Uh, I think if there was mutual respect from the citizens towards the police and back, uh, that would happen. But I think now there's a situation of fear. And I think we really need to... Uh, beware of the differences between the word respect and the word fear because a people that fear you he could kill you because of the fear but a person that respects you he won't kill you because he actually respects you and I think from, from my point of view the police force we have here I think the Norwegians we respect our police force and we respect them because we also feel and see by example that they also respect us. They doesn't fear us as citizens. We doesn't fear them. Uh, but there's mutual respect. And I think if you add mutual respect, or if you just add respect, which is completely free of charge in any criminal correction system or law enforcement system, you will see amazing results. And it's even free. 
Yeah, well, just tacking on to that, something just popped into my head as well. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you you have gun ownership in Norway as well. Obviously, you're you're a large you know hunting population. So, explain to me um, the level of gun ownership and and yet the level of gun violence that you see in Norway. And, and any explanation for that, if you can think of one. Well, I think uh, about the explanation. I think I, uh, I might just guess, but. Uh, in Norway, uh, I think I've seen some uh, newspaper that we are uh, on the sixth or seventh place globally uh, when it comes to gun ownership. There's a lot of hunting rifles, shotguns, a uh, lot of uh, army rifles that uh, uh, servicemen and ex-servicemen have uh, at home, reserviced. Uh, but yet again, the number of uh, for, for instance, the murder rate of, in Norway in, in any given year is like uh, 30 murders a year, maybe. Uh, and that number has decreased from the 70s, where it used to be like 50 or 60. Uh, and we have so we have a very, very low murder rate, uh, but we have a very high number of guns uh, among our general public. Uh, and I think no, I'm just guessing, but I, I, I think the reason for that uh, is that uh, there, there's been a lot of focus on uh, the danger of, you know, having guns uh, around in in uh, in the general public. Uh, but also some interesting fact is that I've talked to a lot of criminals when I work in prison, uh, and they say that most of them, they, they don't arm themselves because they know that the police are not armed. So they don't need to arm themselves. Uh, and um, I think if the police here was uh, on our, was, was armed uh, every day, 24-7, you would see a lot more killings, a lot more gun violence uh, than we see now. And I think that has to do with the fact that we have an unarmed police force. They have access to gun, uh, guns if they need them in their cars and so on, but they don't carry them on their hip. Uh, and uh, also I think... Uh, you need a license to to buy a hunting rifle, for instance. And in order to get that license, you need a course. And in, uh, and that course uh, um, is not only about you know hitting the target. It's all about you know ethics surrounding owning owning a gun. So I think we have focused a lot on on those kind of values and those kind of topics uh, about you know teaching people about guns, about the dangers of guns. Uh, our Army, for instance, they made the decisions uh, in the early 90s that uh, some vital parts of all the guns belonging to reservists at home, they were removed and kept in, in central uh, army storages. Uh, because they saw uh, before the 90s that some men used the army rifles they had at home to kill their spouses, for instance. So as a result of that, they decided that now... Uh, every reservist had to remove the vital parts uh, of the gun, um, uh, being the trigger, for instance, or something else uh, that made the gun unuseful. Uh, so I think all that led to the fact that the number of uh, unwanted gun incidents that decreased uh, rapidly from the 90s and up to now, and also the fact that we have an unarmed police force. Yeah, well, it's such a, an interesting perspective as well because I've I've heard many times in conversations. I just um, had a, a, a chat with Mandar Apte, who's a 
Indian gentleman who's working with nonviolence in the LA area in, in gangs and in, in the police themselves. But many people have highlighted that the militari- militarization of our police is making things worse. Now, I completely understand it from the officer's point of view. At the moment, in the middle of this horrendous, you know, technically war that they're in, of course, you want the appropriate protection. But you know, there's an element of that with the Bearcats and the you know the SWAT you know, um, tactical gear that is definitely going to heighten the the mood rather than de-escalate. So it's trying to find that fine line and and that community policing element where you can get away from you know that that kind of look as much as possible. Mm, I, I certainly agree with you. And uh, I, I had the, uh, I had this, when I was in Oregon uh, last year. I had a meeting with my cousin, which uh, who is a policeman up there, and he was. Uh, we were eating lunch, and he was describing his job uh, being a uniformed officer, and he, he described it like being in a war zone. Uh, and I was thinking, well, uh, if you believe that you actually or think that you are in a war zone, uh, no wonder. Uh, you, you, you see your job as quite violent uh, and you also have the guns on the hip uh, every day uh, and I think in order to have a you know more peaceful society we need to as you point out to de-escalate the situation and I think we cannot cannot uh, cannot expect the general public to be the ones that uh, de-escalate first it has to be you know the, the governmental institutions that start that process uh, to expect uh, and then expect to see that uh, the rest of the society follows after. Absolutely. Well, I rather than do my regular closing questions, I want to put one more question to you both and so I can let you go after that. And then we'll obviously make sure we can find each of you before we leave. But um, back to you, Cyrus. The impact of COVID within the prisons here in the US um, and you know just what you've seen through your own eyes in the country in general. So what, what are some of the, the takeaways from that? Well, you know, it's been uh, it's been a very difficult time, you know, as we were saying earlier for everyone. And I think in some ways, particularly difficult for people living and working in in jails and prisons, Um, you know, like it is in general, as I was saying before, in in our jail and prison systems, it's variable um, across the system. So I think some have really done a model job. Um, Our colleagues in North Dakota, people in Rhode Island who we've worked with in the past as well really prioritized open and regular communication between staff and prisoners early on in the pandemic, um, really were intentional about differentiating medical isolation from solitary confinement so that it was very clear that you weren't being punished for reporting symptoms. Um, you know, I think places that have, uh, some places got serious about releasing people early who, who could be safer in the community and in turn, made staff and prisoners who remained inside um, safer. So, you know, whether it's releasing people 60 days before they should, would have been released or, or even just looking at, at people who, who probably just didn't need to be in there uh, in, a, in a larger sense. Because so I think systems that took those kinds of approaches have done a better job or had better luck in kind of keeping their case counts down. Um, you know, others that hasn't been the case. And I think if you look at any of the, recent data about the the biggest like um, single outbreaks. Um, I think I was looking the other day and I think all of the top 10 now are in correctional facilities in the country. I think you have to get down into like the 20th biggest outbreak before you get into like a meatpacking plant. Um, 
you know, so it, it's been a real mixed bag. And just the one thing I, I'll say as well, um, you know, it's very stressful to be working in this environment and correctional staff are essential staff and they are um, frontline um, health staff really in this case. And, um, you know, they don't really often get the respect or recognition for that work. And I know it's a stressful, frightening and, and dangerous time because of COVID to be in this line of work. Um, but we really appreciate the work that, that staff are doing and those who are continuing to show up to work um, every day. And, uh, you know, we just wish for everybody that they, they stay healthy and stay safe. This has been a very difficult time. Absolutely. And before this, this actually, you know, when it, when it first came about, I had made several, you know, videos and just comments in early interviews that the men and women that we lent on during this, whether it was healthcare workers, you know, firefighters, police officers, medics, and correctional officers, those are the ones that are, you know, their health may not be the best because they're working shift work, because maybe they're, they're, you know, understaffed, they're working extra hours. So, and sadly, we've seen that. We've seen, you know, prison guards that have, you know, fallen foul to COVID. And I think we need to look, as you mentioned, at the health of the men and women that are serving the front lines and ask ourselves, are we creating an environment for them to, th to thrive? Because when something like this happens, everyone else hides in their home and they wait for those men and women to take care of it. Yes, very well said. I couldn't agree more. Right. Well, Tom, you have an interesting perspective on on COVID as a whole. So tell me about Norway's response and, you know, the the number of uh, deaths that you had. Uh, well, I think Norway as a country uh, has come quite well off uh, COVID-19 so far. I think on a national level, we have only like 270 people that actually uh, deceased from the from the, the disease. Uh and I think more or less most of our prisons uh, managed to keep COVID-19 out of the prisons, especially during the first wave in, in March. Uh, Buster Prison was more or less the only prison that actually had uh, infected inmates and staff, um, six staff, six inmates. All of them uh, recovered, uh, luckily. And I think now we are experiencing some clusters of uh, more disease in Norway. And I think uh, right now we have like uh, 12 inmates that are sick from COVID-19 and nine, nine staff. Uh, but I think from early March, we decided kind of to, to shut off our prisons. Uh, we didn't accept any more inmates. Um, we issued a lot of uh, protecting gear for staff and inmates. Uh, and all the inmates were tested uh, with the exact same rights as any other citizen uh, in Norway. Uh, and that's also a very good, you know, uh, thing that Amend has done because I think Amend in the United States have put a lot of their resources into the fight of COVID nineteen in 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 American prison. And I think, you know, just now in, in fifteen minutes, uh, Amend uh, we're going to host a, a, a video conference between Norwegian uh, correctional officer and managers uh, and managers and correctional officers from, from North Dakota, uh, which is, you know, give each other advice uh, across borders, which I think is a very fine and good thing to do because I think uh, uh, we all struggle in all countries in finding good solutions uh, in, you know, keeping the disease uh, outside our prisons. And as you point out, uh, James, that uh, most prison populations, you will find more sick people, more 
uh, stuff with, with you know poor health than you fall, you will find on the outside uh, in some occupations. Absolutely. Well, I, because of that, I'm probably have to let you go then, so so you can get to that. Um, so firstly, thank you so much, you know, both of you. I and mean, we got you know one from from America, one from from Norway. It's been a great conversation. Um, if people want to learn more about Amend or reach out to you, Tom or you, Cyrus, where are the best places for people to find you? Well, they they can. Um, reach out to us and find out more about us, including kind of watching some videos about what we do at amend.us uh, uh, online is probably the best way to find us. Brilliant. And Tom? Yeah, uh, I think that's it's a very good choice, amend.us. Uh, or you can also find us uh, at uh, kriminalomsorgen.no. I will put that. I'll put that link on the web page. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you both. It's been an amazing conversation. Again, out of the box thinking that I think is is going to save numerous lives if people just kind of drop their ego and and realize that maybe we can improve things a little bit. But uh, yeah, I truly appreciate you both coming on, and thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, James. Really appreciate what you're doing with Behind the Shield. It's great.